calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. Welcome to the IGN UK podcast 222. Lovely number. I'm Daniel Kruper and I'm joined by the rather impish. Impish, I'd go with that. Luke yeah. Amali. Hello. Say hello to the people. Hello, uh, good, awesome. good to see you. Yeah, we're, I was allowed back after last week. Just. Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's a good job we don't have points of view on IGN. <laughs> I watched that from San Francisco. I was like, oh my, I can't believe what you were doing. Well, they will leave us behind, eh? It's their own fault. Also, it's hotter than the sun today in this room, so... If we start sounding sweaty or looking sweaty, that's why. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Um, what delicious thoughts begin the podcast with. Yes. Right, um, something, we did something cool this week. We went to the video game Abathers. We did at Tobacco Dock in Wapping. Yeah. Which was exciting. Which is London. a lovely part of London. It is, and we only had to walk about half an hour from the nearest tube to get there. So okay. that wasn't actually exhausting. That's problem. Yeah, I know. Well, yeah. Um, so the Bafters. It was a lovely night. Yes. And they changed the format. Some very, very famous video game dignitaries there on the evening, but we'll get on that onto that in a minute. We will. Um, shall we just briefly go through some of the major categories? Yes, okay, so the big the big winner uh, was The Last of Us, right? So The Last of Us it won... It really cleaned up. Five awards. It was nominated for ten, but it won, it won five, and those five were uh, Best Action Adventure, which I don't really think there's any surprise there, um, Best Audio Achievement... Um, so there's which, definitely audio in that game. Yes, it happens. Best Story, again, I think... Easy. Yes. Um, best game. Now, best game, it was up against um, Assassin's Creed 4. We should say, and it's beating out GTA 5 yeah. in a lot of these yeah. categories. And if you'd asked me beforehand, what do I think would have done better out of the two? I think I would have said GTA. Not that really? I think it's the better game, but simply because this is a, the BAFTAs. Yeah, true. It's a slight kind of jingoistic partiality going on. Yeah. No, true. So uh, the best games were Assassin's Creed 4, Grand Theft Auto 5, Papers, Please, Super Mario 3D World, and Tearaway. Um, so yeah, it, what, it, it beat them out. It trumped out. But there was another big British winner on the night, and that was Tearaway. Yeah. Tearaway won well. a lot of awards on the night. There was huge support in the room from Media Molecule. Tearaway won three. So it won good. Artistic Achievement, which I think is incredibly well-deserved. Mm-hmm. Um, it also won Best Family Game. Yes. Who was uh, it against in Family Game? 
Uh, Animal Crossing New Leaf, Brothers, A Tale of Two Sons, Rayman Legends, which I just started last night, uh, and I love it. I love the fact that on the podcast, it sounds incredibly slick. Anyone watching the video on site, we are frantically just looking through bits <laughs> of crap printed paper look like idiots. It's basically, there's a lot of categories. There's like 17 categories. If Apple watches this podcast and would like to sponsor it and give us free iPads, we're not adverse to that. No. We could, we'll if anything, like we would welcome it. And, you know, we'll probably give you free coverage. That's, you know... We do right. Is that not how we do? <laughs> That's it? why we give those high scores to all those games. Yeah, that so happened. you can pay rent. Pretty much, like, yeah. of course. Yeah. That's how it works. Okay, so and it won best mobile and handheld tearaway, which is good. And then Grand Theft Auto also won three, which was best British game, best game design, best multiplayer. So actually, what we're saying, a lot of the awards were won by very few games. Pretty much, but best multiplayer to Grand Theft Auto Five, really? Yeah, well, it works. But but what I, I I'm thought... almost wondering whether you know there's a political thing going on here. You know, put yourself put yourself in the mind of someone voting for these categories. Even though the juries are broken up, you might think, should should we respect GTA? Because the very big award on the night, yeah, which the is fellowship not award, award, it's the fellowship award. Yeah. They had a Hideo Kojima in town. They did, and he actually came into our office the next day. But we'll talk about that later. And there's a lovely photo. Uh, he presented the BAFTA Fellowship to Rockstar. Mm, and unlike a lot of kind of award ceremonies where these awards are given out and people never turn up, it was actually pretty amazing. Dan, Dan and Sam Hauser, who established the um, company, um, were there on the night to accept the award. And Dan made this very long, um, touching speech. Yeah, which is and, on site as well, if you have Which is... Um, I thought the nicest part of that speech was he took, um, he, he took a good couple of minutes to recognise the contribution his brother Sam had made not only to the company, but to the history of video games. Mm. That when he established Rockstar Games, that this was going to be a company that more than anybody else would fight and strive to establish video games as the next important cultural medium. Yeah. And to be honest, for most of the awards, I was kind of just enjoying them as much as you can in an award ceremony. But when his brother was saying that about Sam, it felt, I, got, I actually became strangely emotional. So I actually thought I was watching something quite important yeah and yes the video game batters aren't super huge yet they're not on tv they stream them live on twitch for the first time this year and then there's like a highlight show i think called challenge at some stage yeah but it actually it felt like a very significant moment in our industry Mm. and yes it's backslapping and it's um giving awards but in that moment you realize that gta becoming the biggest entertainment release of all time was almost like a culmination of sam house's original plan and I don't know, I just I felt, I felt like, very satisfying to watch. It was really nice, like, because we were obviously, um, so Krupa was actually in the, with Alex, in the... Um, I sat next to Carol Vorderman. Yeah. I, I actually sat behind Carol Vorderman, next to Jenny Falconer, and near Michael Underwood. And the scaffolding that Vorderman had on her chest, because there was they no were in your face. For, There was no award for best technology on the night, but if there was, I think <laughs> Carol Vorderman... Her bra deserves some form of shout-out. I'm saying bra. How old is Carol Vorderman? She's like in her 50s. I've looked this up before, she's like in her 50s. Um, that I was often interviewed. So I was checking the ages of Carol Vorderman, Carol Smiley, Carol and various Smiley. defunct British female TV presenters. Um, what's that name? Annika Rice. I know Annika Rice, actually. Yeah. Challenged her. What's that mean? Doesn't make Went sense. On treasure hunt with her. <laughs> Went on, yeah, I flew in a helicopter with her. Um, one, one of the few TV personalities that's more recognisable from behind. Yeah, true. Yeah. Very true. Re of the year. Um, but no, so Daniel was in the room, but I was in the um, press room and then on the red carpet. <laughs> Getting drunk. Yeah, I was, yeah, it was a free bar, so you know what, sue me. And um, I then, we, yeah, offered, we were offered Carol, Va- Carol Vorderman um, to interview. <laughs> we offered her a sacrifice. No, we they offered they know our audience. Yeah. And Especially our international like, audience. They were like, uh, IG, IGM? And I was like, no, it's, it's N. And they were like, 
You know she released the, she has released the game. Yes, yeah, something to do with Sudoku, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Which has nothing to do with math, so she's well out of her depth. Exactly. So that happened, and... Um, oh, yeah, the only other one that I would like to point out is... Um, Best Performer went to Ashley Johnson. Yes. For Ellie in The Last of Us, which I think was very, very good. And it I can't a, find it. It is a land, landmark role. It was, it was accepted by Troy Baker on the night, who... It's a lovely is, man and was also yeah, nominated. He's probably a little bit pissed off because he, he's doing his best to win an award by being every single voice <laughs> every in every, every video game. game ever made this year at last and the future. But uh, the weird thing is... Um, they didn't actually announce... There was a fire, like a, a small fire at the BAFTA as well, so we had to move from one press room to another, which was really fun. It was a small, like, bomb, like Dark Souls-style bomb. It sounds like a small bonfire, but no, yeah. basically all the lights went because we tried to plug too many laptops in in the press room because we were organised like that. And, um, yeah, so we had to move into another room, so we didn't have the live feed, and we just saw Troy Baker there, but we didn't have any sound, and so it was like, oh, Troy Baker's won, and so some sites were like, Troy Baker wins best performer, and it was like, ha, no, you should wait until you get the official word, because he didn't. Anyway, that was kind of my excitement for, for the night. It was fun. There was a free bar. It was good. I think you've covered all the salient points. Yeah. Now, I think I covered them like 20 minutes the actual ago. news, Luke. Okay, yeah, sure. just the news of a free bar. So, I also interviewed some famous people, uh, which was fun. I interviewed Stephen Moffat as well. He was much <laughs> more Scottish than I anticipated. I like how IGN news section has become people Luke met. <laughs> He was much more Scottish than I anticipated. I thought that when he was actually reading out his, his little spiel, I was like, I, I knew you were Scottish. Not that Scottish. And he talked about Peter Capaldi being Scottish, and I was like, all right, let's get over this. Okay. So, anyway. Then, um, the big news was um, Neil Druckmann. Yeah. So, um, I kind of... The way he told me this, he said that The Last of Us movie is actually going to be an adaptation of the game. Um, so, the same story, but how they realise he hasn't quite decided on. But what I found a bit surprising was the way he said this to me was like, so I said, you know, is it gonna, have you decided what's going to be? And he was like, yeah, well, it's an adaptation of the game. And the way he said it made it sound like it had already been announced. He'd already talked about it. And so I when, I was writing, when I was writing up, I was like, this is either going to be, I'm either going to get ripped news. to sheds, yeah, yeah in the comments for old news, or it's new. But now all of our kind of competitive sites have picked it up as though it's new news as well. Should, so I guess it is I'll, new news. I kind of want to say that this is the most depressing thing I could have found out about the Last of Us film adaptation. Because mm. if it's a straight adaptation of the game, I think it's already entirely redundant. Yeah. I've played that story. I don't want to watch that story. I've, I've been a part of that story. I've actually performed it. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I was Joel. I was Ellie. I enacted that story. Why do I then want to go watch people enact it for me, me be excluded, and possibly, probably, see people play those roles not as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the point that um, it's quite a few people made, so when the story went live, some people said in the comments, the plus side is, you know, if you've got family members who are kind of quite down on games and stuff, but you can take them, show them the story. Just, but, yeah, no, I, I, you I, know, know, like, I know that's not your opinion, but no. that's like paying lip service. Like, yeah. oh, somebody doesn't want to read a book, so we'll make a film of it for them. No, they should go play the game. Yeah, completely. Swear. Oh, it's fine. We can swear all the time. We swear now. So, yeah. No, we don't swear, Luke. After last I was, week. I was, that was an impassioned point. It was an impassioned point. See, um, Daniel's not happy with the swearing. But um, also, he muttered more stuff about the kind of sequel potential. He I was, bet that made the transcription hard. Yeah, he was just like, oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, my, my okay. manager. And then um, the only other thing is, last week we saw Troy Baker, who plays Joel. Um, and he said that if there was a film, and he didn't seem to actually know if the film was to do with the game either, but he was like, yeah, no, if that, if that happens and they want me back for Joel, I'm there. Yeah. So, I don't think they will, though. He's, he, 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 like, he's quite a beautiful man, Trey Baker. Like, depressingly so. He is. I'm, I'm not quite worked out who he reminds me of. 
No. I used to go to university with a guy called Adam Smith. He looks very, a bit like. He has very floppy hair, Troy Baker, as mm. well. But he's got slipped back. You look at you Google image search him, and he doesn't look anything like that. He's quite. But I mean, I did see him at the Baftas, but he was quite, you know, kind of striking. Yeah, I saw him at an infamous yeah. event last week, and he said that he'd be up for it. But I don't know. You need someone who's a bit more rugged, and he's also very, very tall. Which I did jo- like. The... Joel is normal size, and Ellie is like. But he's kinda... very soon going to be recasting. Characters that we've become very attached to. Well, I'm sorry, like, but if you choose anyone other than Ellen Page, for that's a, weird. Full circle. Just make Ashley this Johnson. full circle. But then, it's, but this is the thing. Not Ellen, like this is gonna. Ashley Dalton uh, looks nothing like Ellie. But that. But you're casting for looks then, rather than ability. Anyway, let's yeah. move on. Anyway, we so talk about this forever. That's, that's, that's that. T- let us know your thoughts at iGen underscore UK feedback at iGen.com. So, the best email address ever, mate. Yeah, it's catchy and easy to remember. Um, the other thing that happened, so I spoke to Courtney Draper, okay. who is a lovely lady. She played Elizabeth in Bioshock. Right, okay. And again, it's a bit of kind of movie tie-in in the sense that she was kind of chatting to us about... So there was this Bioshock movie that was going to happen, and uh, Gore Verbinski, yes. who of Pirates of the Caribbean fame, was going to head it up. All went a bit wrong, and then a couple of years ago, last we heard, um, Ken Levine himself had killed it because he was like, "I'm it's not happy. It's going to, yeah, it's going to be done wrong." Um, so we thought it was all done, but I asked her, you know, if they did another one, if they did a movie, would you be interested in being Elizabeth in it? And she said, um, "Are you kidding me? Yes. Hopefully, it doesn't take twenty years, and then I'm too old, and I could only play old Elizabeth. But it would be phenomenal. It's something I've actually already been talking to Ken about because I'm excited for it, and I'd be really excited to see that come to life on the big screen." So. She might just be saying, you know, she brought up and passing with him. Or she might be or, saying... Or she's really harassing him. Or she's haranguing him. Like, Ken's like, I've moved on. Yeah. Honestly, I just... Courtney, I've had a lovely time. But, um, but yeah, so, I don't know, that's quite interesting. It sounds like... It sounds like she wants a job. It sounds like she wants, oh, the actor's life. Um, but I think she kind of just wants, you know, it, yeah. it sounds like they are still open to yeah. the possibility. Um, and then the other thing she said, I asked her about... Um, Obviously, the sad stuff that happened with Irrational, you know, being downsized. And she was like, she didn't know about it, but she's confident that all the brilliant people will find new jobs. So, well done her. Oh, very lovely. That was Courtney Draper. She was nice. She was very attractive. And weirdly, right, this is a weird tidbit, little tidbit You're, for you. you're a summary of the night. <laughs> Look, How uh, attractive for you. Well, for a bit, we were kind of pretending that we were doing E! News. And so, like, we got a little bit overexcited, and that might have been the wine. But, so I've still got all this tidbit. Courtney Draper, who played Elizabeth in Bioshock, Troy Baker... Played the other guy. Bucket of Wit. Boom, that's his name. So, Courtney Draper's boyfriend, who was acting as her chaperone on the evening. Are we a gossip news lo- he, look, he looked the spitting image of Troy Baker, and we were like, whoa, did you start dating him before or after? Like, Bioshock Infinite happened? I thought that was really interesting. We thought it was really interesting. She's got big daddy issues. Hey! hey. Which would be better if there were big daddies in. Um, Bioshock doesn't Infinite. quite work, does no. it? But we're but, trying. But um, Bioshock Infinite does go back to Rapture. Spoiler. Don't oh, what? Anymore. Don't Very let's see. Anymore. There you go. Yeah. I've got one more. One more. So, Assassin's Creed 5. Where do you think it's going to be? Uh, Chippenham. Good. Believable. Chippenham Service Station. That's the dream. Um, I said Feudal Japan was the my al- guess. Also, Hebrides. <laughs> Honestly, we've put in so much detail into the maps, we can't make them very big. Can you believe it? Just, yeah, it's just one acre. You just run around for a bit. The odd goat. Um, so yeah, no, I I said feudal Japan, and then Jade Raymond specifically, despite me, I maintain maintain said um, welcome to the IGN UK podcast. Uh, coming like <laughs> to you live from Australia. Um, so yeah, I asked them what we should expect from Assassin's Creed Five because obviously naval battles, big deal in Assassin's yeah. Creed Four. Lots of people like them, um, and they were like, yeah, we don't decide on gameplay features and then build 
you know, and then pick a history period that works on that. Oh, clearly. We decide a history, a historical period, and then figure out the gameplay things. So there's no guarantee that we will be having naval battles, sadly, in Assassin's Creed 5. Um, would, they, would they say any more? Or were they just quiet? I said, have you got anything to announce? They just went, nope. So that was that. Was, was that. that was pretty awkward then. Yeah, no, it was a bit. It was on the red carpet as well. And like, they were just like... They know. gave you nada. Yeah, when they're kind of daring you, right you with their eyes. So what's like, your money on? I know we talk about this constantly. We used Assassin's Creed 5? Yeah, go on, make a prediction. Well, some people have been muttering about... I think French Revolution's quite... Actually, you know what? We should do this on the side. We should just do a big poll. We should... It's I, not the most creative feature, but we should just do a big poll of all the... I think French Revolution. I would like Victorian England, but I don't think it will be because of the Order 1886, and I just wonder... Yeah, but you don't know when production started, maybe. No, but I wonder how... Yeah, true. Because I don't think it'll be... What, when do you think? I, I would, obviously, being... A Londoner now. Yeah. It would be quite cool to go around Victoria nice. London having the fog, <laughs> distance fogging. And you're Jack the Ripper. Reason. Um, but yeah, a, a Queen Victoria is a proper character. Yeah. And then one of your missions is to amuse her. That could be quite fun. That'd be quite good. Yes. Um, so that's, we'd love to hear what your suggestions are as well. You know the email would. address. I'm not saying it again because, you know, we've only got two hours. To and I'll put it in the story and you can there click you it. Go. Um, helpful. Now, that was the news. <laughs> that was the BAFTAs. Yes. Um, we also had Kojima come in the day after the BAFTAs for two whole hours, and we've got loads of awesome stuff from Kojima that you'll see on IGN in the coming weeks, but I'm going to not say any more no. about that right now. But it was very exciting. Yeah, and he might have told us more about the Metal Gear film adaptation as well, but I'll save that for later. Um, the cool thing, the main section of the podcast this week will actually won't be us, it'll be two grumpy old men. It'll be Stuart Reed, and it'll be Terry Gilliam, the very brilliant British filmmaker. And we're claiming it was British now. Can you explain what the Zero Theorem is? It's trying to prove um, a negative positively, is what we're really doing. Can zero equal 100%? These, this is our, our main character, Q Cohen, uh, Christoph Waltz. He's been given this job to prove this theorem, which is basically saying that everything equals nothing. And the film is a bit like that. There was, a, there was a, a young guy in the sound department when he was watching it. Uh, and I said, what do you think? He says, that's, that's great, fantastic. Yeah, but, but can you describe it? What's it about? He says, this is the problem. It's about everything and about nothing, nothing at the same time. So that's fair enough. <laughs> it seems to work. It's a remarkable performance by, by um, Christoph Waltz. Yeah, I mean, he, was, he is the movie, to be honest. I mean, when we first met, I said... You know, I'm going to follow you, Christoph. You are the movie. He's never off screen. And, you know, he's playing this, this computer whiz. Uh, he, does it, he wants to work at home and get away from the, the noise and the, the happiness and the frenzy of you know, the jolly workspace he's in. And he just is focusing on this problem of solving this theorem, uh, which is, we designed it a bit like a video game. Mm-hmm. So it's his chance to fly, in a sense. And at the same time, he's there at home waiting for a phone call. It's going to give meaning to his life. It's going to explain what he's there for, which is an absurd thing. So the man is not completely uh, (laughs) all together, let's put it that way. We are are not all together, as he would say. Exactly, we are not. He refers to himself in the third person. He is basically escaping from the frenzy of the modern life and, and all the connectivity, all the attacking from advertising to find out, wait for... Who am I? What's it about? And of course, it doesn't work that way. And uh, the world keeps coming back at him, and he may fall in love. He may become a parental to uh, this boy. He actually 
rediscovers his humanity in a strange way uh, and may or may not end up finding solace in the virtual world. Because a lot of it, there's there's a terrific scene, uh, the, the party scene, mm. uh, where David Dewis's character is throwing a party for everybody he works with. It could be set today because everybody is just with their phones and with their tablets and they've got headphones in. Is the film really about what is happening today and the way everybody is connected and nobody is connected anymore? Well, no, it is. It's. it's I mean, I... I think most of my films, in one way or the other, are, are my comment on the current state of affairs in the world. And I always push them into the past or the future a bit to abstract it a bit. So it's more playful. You can have fun with it. You don't have to recreate reality. So you abstract, you, a, a cartoonist version of reality, it, it becomes. What was interesting, so many of the ideas in there, I thought, were about the near future. But by the time we'd finished the film, they were already in the past. <laughs> People do go to parties now and just, and you dance with your iPad, your iPhone. You're actually, while you're dancing with somebody here over your, their shoulder, you're actually flirting with somebody who's dancing with somebody over there on their iPhone. This is what we were doing. But I found out they do parties like that now. It's, it's just people are so, so not in the moment anymore. They're missing the moment. They're commenting on the moment. I was doing, a few years ago, Arcade Fire. We, we did a... Uh, a webcast from Madison Square Garden. Yes. And I was supposedly directing the show. And what made me crazy was before the first song had even finished, the tweets were coming in. Mm. People were commenting. And my thing just shot up. Listen to the song. Enjoy the song. Experience the song. Then you can say something about it. But people are so quick to comment now before they've actually really been in the moment. I, and it bothers me. And, and we're all, even last night, I was sitting around the table with my family, and people, we were, we were checking out, you know, either going to Wikipedia to get an answer on this or find out the name of that person yeah. uh, in that movie on uh, IMDb. Uh, it's, it's very weird. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not against all of it. I just, it's like, let's say, let's find some space. I... When I began Zero Theorem, I really was obsessed about the idea of aloneness, being alone. How do you know who you are if you're just permanently connected to somebody else? What's their opinion? What are you thinking? What are you... Yeah. How do you know? You've got to be alone. And, I, and I'm really fighting to encourage that in people. I remember we've got a house in Italy, and my son, when he was younger, we don't have television there, we don't have telephone, we are disconnected. Mm-hmm. And the first couple of days, he'd be bored out of his mind. And then he would start playing. Then he would say, oh, that branch, that stick, oh, that, that's, okay, I got a sword. No, no, I got a bow. And he starts inventing things. And I thought, by the end of a week or two, he was a different person. He was imaginative, he was creative, he was full of life. And as soon as he got home, of course, he switched on the television, got the, the Tony Hawks on yeah. skateboarding out. <laughs> So you, you, you've got children. Are they gamers? Do they, do they play video games? My son does, yeah. 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 He's getting, I mean, he's older now. He's 25. He's, he's getting a bit bored with it now. Even when he was gaming a lot when he was younger, especially Tony Hawk's skateboarding, mm-hmm. because he also started skateboarding in reality. And I said, okay. notice the difference between the two things? Yeah. One is a fantasy. The other hurts. Yeah. Remember that. <laughs> That's almost a good way a good way of describing a lot of your films. Yeah. Because it seems to me the Zero Theorem, it does share that strand of DNA with, with Brazil, yeah, yeah, yeah. With, with 12 monkeys. Do you kind of envisage them as being all in the same universe? No, I think they're all different, really. I, at least I try to. I mean, invariably, they're my take on what I think the world is at the moment I was making that particular film. And, and Brazil was about 
you know, terrorists and uh, a huge government organization, which is now called Homeland Security in America. <laughs> it was called the Ministry of Information back there. But, you know, uh, and then 12 Monkeys was was actually much more about time travel and, 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 and the destruction of the world to the point that, you know, a virus wipes out five billion people. Bioterror- bioterrorism. Yeah. Yeah. Five billion people, and, and here's the future. How do we carry on as, as, as a race or a species? Um, and this one was really about the connected world, or the, yeah. which does seem to isolate people. I think one of the things in there is the porn site, uh, the online, you know, which is like the online dating sites where people can pre- pretend to be six foot five, you know, sure. you know, six packs, and, and you're... you're the avatar you have is falling in love with an avatar of some woman. Is that, has, do these people ever meet in reality? It seems to me it's the next step from all the chat room stuff that yeah, goes yeah. on around the world because you never really know who you're talking to yeah. at the other end of a, of a, of a modem. Yeah. Well, what happens if you've pretended to be this sort of person and she's been pretending and you finally agree to meet mm-hmm. in a cafe somewhere? Who gets there first? And does the <laughs> one who gets there second just duck out? I wanted to talk about... Um, to go back to some of your films, uh, some of your earlier films, and I, I guess that the the word that is used a lot with Terry Gilliam movies, especially with with the couple I just mentioned, is the dystopian future. And, and do you get do you feel that you kind of get trapped in in being that that kind of director that people think you are? Where oh my god, it's a Terry Terry Gilliam movie. It's going to be about the future, and it's going to be miserable, and there's not going to be a happy ending. <laughs> You're gonna have fun getting there, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I said, I mean, I partly, I'm. Well, number one, I don't actually, in a strange way, don't think zero therapy is supposed to be a dystopia. I think it's a utopia. Everybody's happy except yeah. for our main character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're all having a great time shopping. You know, having wearing great clothes, incredible clothes. Yeah, the the the, the, fa- the costume design of that was well, remarkable. I'll explain that. That's only because we had no money. That's why it's so remarkable. This is where lack of money produces creative solutions that are better than uh, what we could afford. Because I'll just do this digression sure. on that one because. And Carlo Poggioli, who designed designed the costumes, had no money to work with. I mean, you you look at this film. I've I've read people think I've just been reading about it being a big budget blockbuster. Yeah, uh, people think it's twenty thirty million dollars. We did it for eight and a half million dollars. Wow. I haven't worked with that little money since before Life of Brian. Really? Yeah, that's that's the thing. And we have to create this big, expansive, glittery kind of busy world, and we did it. Uh, and we did it for, because a lot of friends came in and worked for nothing, basically, to help. But, but the costumes, he had, I don't know, 200, 300 costumes to do with no money. And he discovered outside of Bucharest, where we were shooting again, the cheapest place in Europe where you get good crews. So, uh, he found a, a Chinese market that was selling fabric, not by the meter or the yard, but by the kilo. <laughs> It was horrible stuff, but it had these amazing patterns on it. And so he got that for next to nothing. And then he still was pinched. And so he started getting uh, transparent shower curtains and tablecloths. Yeah. And those clothes are made from those. It's, it's, and it's, it's that thing of working with really talented people who, when pushed into a corner with no money, mm. use their imagination to come up with solutions. And that, so the film doesn't look like anything else out there because of that. Well, you recently said that the, it, the filmmaking is almost like a class system. There is no middle class anymore with mm. filmmaking. You've either got upper class, which are the kind of 100 million, 200 million ridiculous yeah. blockbusters, yeah. or you've got films that are just made for, for pennies. Yeah. 
But that's the world we live in now. What I was interested in, as you mentioned earlier on, is that you shot on film. Now, wouldn't a film like yours be cheaper to shoot digitally? We may have been at that crossroads in history <laughs> when film... We were getting good deals on film because the film business was dying, right. in a sense. And the digital was coming up. And so we found out we could actually do it for the same price. And, and that's why it is what we can now reveal to your viewers. Uh, the first one-size-fits-all, full-gate, semi-vinyl motion picture. <laughs> do you want to know what that means? Tell me. Okay. <laughs> now, we shot it in 16 by 9 is what you'll see on your TV screens and your computer screen. That's yeah. basically 16 by 9 proportion. Now, that doesn't quite exist in the film world. That's a bit weird. So if you actually watch the film in a cinema, you'll see two little strips of black down the side. Okay, because we fit it in. Because I wanted everybody to see exactly the same image. Right. Because normally what happens, you make a widescreen film, and then you crop it in when you get down to your, uh, your, your home cinemas. Sure. Uh, so that's the um, one-size-fits-all part. of. Then the next bit is the full gate. Now, if you see the film, you'll see the corners are slightly rounded. Yes, I noticed that. Great. Because <laughs> here's, a, here's a film camera and there's the gate. Yeah. There. Now, normally within the gate, there's a safety area, which is the nice square. And that's what people normally only see. Sure. I showed the whole thing. You haven't seen the full gates in silent movies. <laughs> it's there with the curved corners. There's no place to hide, basically. It's technically, it has to be technically brilliant to do that. And we had a great crew. So that's the, that's that. Now, we shot on film. That's the uh, analog part. That's the vinyl part, yeah. as it were. But there's about 260 effect shots, which are digital. So it's semi-vinyl. <laughs> I couldn't <laughs> lie. And of course, it's a motion picture. That's it. Film still has the capability, capability of gathering more information than, than digital does, which saves our ass often because there's certain when you're working you're working fast and mistakes happen there's one particular scene where Matt Damon first appears in the film and there was too much light through the windows they were just over overlit Nicola screwed up that day <laughs> and we were because we were on film we were able to pull back all the detail of the window and, yeah. and, and, and fix it so I still prefer film and I'll stay on it as long as I can but it won't be that much longer, I don't think. Of course, one of the most famous things in your career has been a film being released that, that didn't contain much of what you wanted people to see. I'm talking about Brazil, of course, and that, the yeah. infamous cut of Brazil. Yeah. Uh, I can see in your eyes it still probably hurts to think about the no. way that film was treated. No, 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 not really, because we got out into the cinemas the film we made. What happened later when it came to syndicated television where you've know, got a, uh, commercials every five minutes, yeah. they put, the studio put out their cut. But I actually won the Battle of Brazil. That's what, what um, well, <laughs> ruined my career. <laughs> to, to take on a studio and beat them is a very bad thing yeah. to do for, in the long term. <laughs> you, did all, did. You, you did all right, though, because, I mean, you, you did Munchausen, Fisher King, and 12 Monkeys, and Fear yeah, and Loathing yeah. Las Vegas after that. I mean, that's not a bad... Not, that's a bloody good run of movies. And I, yeah, I know. And I don't, know, I don't know why Munchausen gets such a kicking. It, it actually, what was weird about Munchausen, because it's like with uh, Citizen Kane, with Orson Welles, he made you know, Citizen Kane, great movie. Then his next movie was The Magnificent Ambersons, yep. and he got kicked to death on that one, basically. Got it taken away from him, got it all that had stuff. recut. And Munchausen was my magnificent absence, if, if we could say Brazil was my Citizen Kane. Because after 
winning over the studios, I was the bad boy of Hollywood. I mean, I'd, I'd shame them publicly and all this. So Munchausen went out of control. It went out of control. And actually, it didn't go out of control. What it did do was the producer, we had $23.5 million. The producer got brought in the first accountant. He said, it's going to cost $60 million. He was fired. Next one comes in, 45. He's fired. Okay, done. We finally, the fourth accountant said, oh, we can make it for 23 and a half. <laughs> and that's what happened. And I had storyboarded the whole movie. It was all planned. So there are no secrets, no surprises. And then, of course, six weeks into the shoot, all the money was gone. Yeah. And what do you do? I mean, well, what happened in, in the case of Munchausen was... The, the, we had this scene on the moon, which was originally it was Sean Connery was king of the moon, and there were two thousand people on the moon, all whose heads came loose at a certain uh, point and floated separately. Well, all I did was cut off in the end three zeros, so it ended up two people on the moon, <laughs> <laughs> and I rewrote it, and it was Robin Williams rather than Sean doing it. And so we got through it. What ultimately happened, though, the studio changed hands while we were making it. And that's always a bad thing. Change of regime is bad. And David Putnam had gotten the elbow, who had greenlit it, and now Don Steele came in, who was running it. And even though I tried to win her over and say, it's not a Putnam film, it's your film, Don, all this, they, they only released, they opened it with 52 prints in America. That's, that's just not releasing that's a film. Right. I mean, people release films at 2,000, 3,000 prints. And so... It was dead in the water from the start, even though it got these great reviews. And over the years, I keep finding more and more people say it's their favorite film of all the ones I've done. So I'm, I'm really happy with it. Films exist. The studios are long gone. Most of those people are dead. <laughs> let's, um, let's talk about some of the films that you're famous for not making. <laughs> ah, I've What's... done more of those. <laughs> <laughs> What's the latest with Don Quixote? Well, we're starting again. The plan is, we've said, we're going to start shooting at the end of September this year. Uh, at this particular moment, we have neither the money or cast, but right. you start, yeah. you just leap and see what happens. Uh, now, I've got to get it out of my system, basically. It's not that it's the thing I have to do only in the fact that it's like this tumor that's grown inside me, that until I excise it, I'm not going to be able to, to live happily. Uh, uh, so we shall see what happens. Each time I... I approach it, I rewrite it again. Okay. Yeah, it, it, so it's a constantly growing thing. It's not like a static idea that has to be done. It's mm. a shifting thing. And it becomes, I suppose, in many ways, more autobiographical each time I approach it. <laughs> Do you think if you'd, if you'd uh, made the version that became Lost in La Mancha, mm. do you think you'd still be happy with that? Or do you think you, you would, it would irritate you and you'd want to go and remake it? I don't know. I think I think where we are now is a better movie. I think I've actually had a few really good uh, creative leaps along the way, and it's it's more about now about the danger of movie making than anything else. Right. <laughs> and it's uh, no, I don't know. I I don't watch my films once they're finished. I tend not to because uh, I just want to move on. I just they're there. I've spent you know a couple of years on each one of them, maybe three, four in some cases. Yeah. Okay. Get out there. You're on your own. <laughs> and it's, uh, and when I look at them, I too often see the mistakes in them. And I begin, to, on the other hand, I also see bits. I, I wonder who made that film. How, how, he was really smart back then. Look at that. That's really clever. I don't know how to do that now. <laughs> <laughs> so do you, do you literally just lock the print and then walk away from it? I tend to, yeah. yeah. I mean, occasionally, I had recently, last year, um, 
this company, Aerofilm, was, uh, did a new version or did a Blu-ray version of, of Time Bandits. Mm-hmm. So I had to look at it and just to make sure the colors were right and all those things. And, and I did fix a couple of things. It wasn't like I didn't change anything. I just tidied up a couple of bits of the effects that had been rushed at the time. Okay. I yeah. didn't take the, the rifles out of E.T. that yeah. Spielberg did. You didn't George Lucas it? No. Well, he no, just remade no. the film. No, but this is... No, I, I don't want to do that. A film seems to me it's the pro- product of a particular time, place, and the people that make it. That's it. Yeah. It's a record. Boom. End of conversation. Move on. If you want to remake it, well, you know, change... Well, you, you can change the name, change the costumes, and my wife says I keep making the same film. <laughs> <laughs> I think they share similarities. There's similarities, I mean, yeah. What, what are you, I'm sure you didn't answer this. Why do you seem to hate your, your protagonists? I mean, because they, they do seem to end up... Mm. In, I don't a, hate, in, a, in, a, in a bad place. I don't hate them. I'm testing them. I'm testing them like, like God tested Job. <laughs> I mean, I, it's really, it's funny. I, I think happy endings worry me because everybody, most, you know, 99% of the films are happy endings. Yeah. And I think, okay, there's enough happy endings in the world out there. <laughs> Let's offer other endings that may be less happy. They're not Sometimes they're tragic. Sometimes they're just another way. In the case of, say, Brazil, I thought in within the rules of the world that we created in that film, mm-hmm. the ending was the happiest ending you could have in that world. <laughs> he yeah. had gone into his own head, and he was maybe crazy, but he was content yeah. in his madness. Okay, that's not an unhappy ending. Um, uh, the kid, okay, Bruce Willis dies in 12 months. <laughs> but he, he's, he's, he's there as a boy, and he sees his own death. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. and he's, he's ready to live his life, having seen his own death. Okay, these are, they're just more interesting to me endings. I mean, the one in Zero Theorem, which I won't actually say what it is, but he was like, the best ending I could come up, there actually is, we shot a happy ending. Okay. I didn't buy it. I said, this is, this is a Hollywood movie. This is bullshit. We've, we've created this world. We've put this character in. And you can't do that. That's just wishful thinking. Mm. Grow up, folks. So I did one which I think is actually sublime, possibly zen, and maybe the future for more people than you think. <laughs> anyway, but it's, and I also like leaving the audience with something to think about, to talk about, to yeah. argue about. They can like it, they can dislike it, but if it creates um, a discussion, then we've done something useful, getting people talking, discussing things. <laughs> so we've kind of established that you are, you're out of the Hollywood system really, aren't you now? Could you, could you imagine being welcomed back in, given $100 million or $150 million and told to make a, yeah. a, a superhero movie? That's a hard, I mean, you know, 20 years ago, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. That's what, and, it's, and it's now, I don't know if I have either the energy or the patience to work in, in that world anymore because you're dealing with... I mean, to be, I'm, to be absolutely honest about it, my, my sojourn in Hollywood with, uh, with you know, well, forget about the Brazil thing, but, you know, Fisher King, 12 Monkeys, and, and Fair and Loathing were the easiest films I've ever made because you know, studio executives are wusses, basically. Right. <laughs> they're so worried about losing their job. They, you know, they're, un, they're uncertain people. Uh, in the independent world, you're dealing with people who have got less money, and it's probably their own money at stake, mm. and they're tougher. Yeah. Um, but it's more realistic. Uh, I think the studio system now has become so... They don't know what to do anymore, so just spend money and do sequels, sequels and sequels. And I, 
I just don't want to do that. I don't want to encourage any more sequels of. I don't want to see another Pirates, even though it makes Johnny Rich. Yeah, uh, sure. And you know, and it's, and it's. I think sequels would be all right if you were really dealing with new ideas within the, the context of the world that you know the sequel is taking place. But it doesn't seem to happen. You know, there are very few that are better than the early ones, mm. because it's just the way the system works. I mean, the guys that are coming up are the, not the really good directors, they're the ones who hopefully are getting their first step up in there. In the studio, the theory of the studios is they'll be able to control those guys. Yeah. And then those guys end up making, whether it's successful or not, they end up compromising to the extent that by the time they can do what they want to do, they no longer uh, are the same person that wanted to do something. I've always been worried about protecting whatever honesty or truth or... or you know, belief in what I'm doing. For all, I want to make my own mistakes. Is what it's about. Sure. I don't want to make the studio's mistakes. <laughs> Do you wish you'd made Watchmen? Um, at the time, yes. I don't know. No, I, it's it's a weird one because we've been all over the web recently. Of course, with, yeah. With, and it's, I mean, we wrote the script. I wasn't totally happy with the script because I loved the the comic book or the graphic novel. The comic book sorry, is what, it, and. I loved it. I really thought it was fantastic. And to re- we were trying to reduce it down to you know, two and a half hours, 250. Yeah. And you throw out so much stuff. But what I didn't want to do is throw out all the, 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 the subtlety, the, 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 the little bits of detail that make each of these characters more than a comic book character. That's what the book was so good about. And I kind of felt we weren't holding on to it. I thought with Zack Snyder's, it started brilliantly. I thought, wow, it looks great. It feels good. But it suffered from losing, you know, so much of the detail that made the characters interesting. Yeah. And that's what, that's what bothered me. And I, I mean, we struggled with it, and we came up with a version that clearly Joel Silver thought was terrific, which is fine. I'm glad somebody likes it. <laughs> I mean, Alan Moore, because I talked to Alan about it, and, and he basically said, you know, uh, I'd rather you f*** it up than me. That's <laughs> what he said. And, and because... There's such a, I feel a responsibility when you take on something like Fear and Loathing, anything that has been written out there, yeah. to hold on to the essence of it and not... The detail will go, but the essence of Watchmen was those characters the in, and, and enough time to develop each character. And I think, in the end, Zach's film suffered because he he didn't have the time to do it. Well, that, that comment there, that he saved it from, from oh. you, I mean, that's that's... Well, that's a, what is it? I, mean, I was I was actually quite a supporter of his until that. I thought, now Zach, you're just stupid. What are you talking about? And who are these Terry Gilliams of the world? Who are they? Oh, I thought there was only one troublemaker, <laughs> but there seems to be legions loads of them of out there. Those of you making loads of bloody movies out there. It's a strange, bizarre comment to make, but it doesn't bother me. And of course, you know, the web. Uh, this is the, the the food for the web. Everybody just loves getting onto this stuff. Yeah. I, it doesn't worry me one way or another. I mean, he's done some very good work. Uh, well, I mean, did you see Sucker Punch? Unfortunately, no. Because or fortunately, no. Unfortunately, all no. my all my friends say it's. But you know, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it it's it doesn't have a, what makes a Gilliam movie a Gilliam movie, which is mm. you. But it has a certain art aesthetic to it, which makes it look in places like you shot really? it. Really? Yeah. Oh, I don't, I don't so, know. So. Aesthetically, no, he's got a good eye. He yeah. knows how to make movies. There's, this is, to me, the problem in, in, in Hollywood at the moment. You've got these great technicians. They're brilliant. They're better than I am. They've got more technical skill, great eye. They can do all of those things. And yet, 
what's the real content of the thing? And that's what I'm, I'm struggling with, whether people like or dislike what I do is, is almost beside the point. I'm just trying to deal with something that nobody else is dealing with at the moment, look at things in a different way. Uh, and it means that, you know, half the audience will walk out. Mm. I don't care. I'm more interested in the ones that get excited by what I'm trying to, to do and, and stick with it. It's, it's just, but if you're spending $150 billion, you've got to try to make something that's going to appeal to everybody. Yeah. And I don't want to waste my time doing that. <laughs> So that was Stuart talking to Terry Gilliam. Um, he was promoting Zero Theorem, which is out this week. It is. So out this week, film-wise, we got Zero Theorem, which Stuart thought was pretty good. Um, not Gilliam's best work, kind of average, but if you're a fan of Gilliam, definitely worth seeking out anyway. Um, also out on the film front, we've got um, Veronica Moore as the film. Right, was that the one that got Kickstarter funded? It is indeed. There you go. Um, I've never seen Veronica Moore, but people tell me it's very good. And obviously some people with a lot of money believe so too. Yeah. Um, I think we've actually given it a pretty decent review, so that's out of And also nice. Under the Skin, which is the Scarlett Johansson film where she gets a bit... Naked. Naked. Is that so... the one that Tilly was on about? <laughs> yeah. Uh. Um, it's supposed to be very weird and very surreal and engrossing. Mm. And I've seen a lot of people, I've not seen it myself, but a lot of people on Twitter are saying it's actually really stayed with them. Giff said her, her her performance is quite good as well, and yes. I don't know if that's I don't think it's down uh, to the nudity. Yeah. I think it's down. Actually, meeting her in a few weeks. You are. Yeah, I'm interviewing Scotty Hansen for the Captain America junket. Okay, well that's fair. Fine, yeah. whatever. I don't care. We'll be besties this time. It doesn't matter. Time. I met Stephen Moffat. Well, and yeah. Carol Vorderman was near me. Carol Vorderman was in front of me. Jenny Falcon is the right. Michael Underwood to the left. A very different type of Reservoir Dog song. Hey, hey. that's fine. Um, what's out games-wise, Luke? Quite a lot of games, actually. Quite a lot of good games. Games so, are actually coming out. Now. I know. <laughs> Got, we're, oh. we're here. This is all happening. I'm so terribly overworked. Dark Souls Two. Yep. Which we gave a nine. I've played ten hours of Dark Souls Two. Have you? Yes. Is it good or is it shit? Um, so I got a code a couple of weeks ago, and then I didn't play it until I got home from San Francisco, and I was a bit jet lagged, and I played it at the weekend, and. I've played for 10 hours, I've got absolutely no work. <laughs> I didn't I'm wonder why you were acting nowhere. quite, why you seem quite harassed uh, this week. So I just got to the first boss and he's just this big tree, man. I don't know why. <laughs> he's I, just... like, I'm going to pick up a copy today after work and I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to play it. I just, I know it's going to, I started Rayman Legends last night and I'm stressed out by the first couple of levels of that. I just can't really handle any stress in my games. and nah. then, I just don't know why we're doing it, really. But it is... We were going to play it together, weren't we? Loads of people bang on about Dark Souls all the time, and I know it's really boring for people not interested in Dark Souls to be kind of evangelised to. That's the thing that happens with Dark Souls. People who get it... I say get it, but I'm not speaking from a position of like loving it. Yeah. But if you kind of play it and enjoy it, you go around thinking it's your job to tell other people that they should enjoy it when they don't want to. It's fine, I'm not going to do that. But there is when you go past a certain point, it becomes this very kind of satisfying... Sadism, masochism to it, and yeah, well, that's, where I, am, an invader, that's, that's where I am right now with it. Um, what else, Luke? Uh, so, little game that no one's really heard of called Titanfall. No idea what it is. Got an 8.9, so I assume it's acceptable. <laughs> it's 0.1, not as good as Dark Souls 2. There you go, and they are the things that matter in this world. Yeah, don't bother reading all those thousands of words that take hours to do, or watching the video review, which takes, again, hours to do. Just look at the score. That's what I do. Just look at the score. No um, one matters. And then the final one we have this week, um, Wii U owners, your time has come! Well, no. No? No? 3DS owners. Oh. 
That was mean of me, wasn't it? <laughs> Your uh, time is definitely not good. Your time is still not good. Until gone. May when Mario Kart comes out. Yeah, so it's uh, Yoshi's New Island, which um, got 7.9 from us, but has got some quite mixed reviews across the board. Yeah, very fluctuating reviews. Yeah, I think it's, it's polarised, so that's going to be all right. Um, but yes, I don't know, I think Dark Souls 2 is I think that would be our, I think that would be our pick of the week. Yes, Titanfall, excellent, obviously, but Especially you don't... Especially if you've got an Xbox One. I was going to say, you don't really need us to tell you to get Titanfall. If, if you're probably not cons- watching this. I was going to say, if you've got a console that can play it, you're not listening to us, you're playing it. So, um, so yeah, that's... Is there so, anything else we need to... Pa- I think that's it for this week. Um, yeah, oh, I have a feature going up today that could go one or two ways. Yeah. So look out for that on the site. Uh, See you next week. Good to see you. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.